It is so certain it was written in the past tense. So in God's eternal counsels, we are already glorified. Of course, practically speaking, we're not glorified yet. But in God's eyes, it's as if it's already happened. But you might ask the question, and I'm sure Paul was logically thinking this way, well, what about, what about all those years from the believer's conversion until the day when we are actually like Jesus Christ? What about the years in between? Is there not a possibility that during those years in between our salvation or our conversion and our glorification, that uh, the testing that comes our way, well, you know, things might go wrong that might cause us to forfeit our salvation? Well, let's address that question today with a series of questions that we, that, uh, we find here in our passage in Romans 8. Our first question, our first major question we'll ask today is this. Can a person cause a believer to lose their salvation? Can a person cause a believer to lose their salvation? Look at verse 31, Romans 8, verse 31. The question is given us here. What then shall we say to these things? By the way, these things are referring to the previous verses. They are the these things of eternal security. That we have assurance of salvation. That everything is going to turn out good for the believer. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Now notice in verse 31, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit here, begins with this all-encompassing rhetorical question. Paul is, is well known for giving these rhetorical questions. By the way, a rhetorical question is one that doesn't need to be answered because it, it has an obvious, well-known answer. Is If God is for us, who is against us? That's a rhetorical question because there is nothing bigger and more powerful and greater and gooder. I know that's not a word, but there's nothing better than God. So if he's for us, then nothing can be against us. And by the word, the way the word, that little word there at the beginning, if, if signifies a fulfilled condition. Typically we think of if as something that might happen but in this case it's already fulfilled it's it's not a mere possibility and and actually you could translate this verse here because god is for us it's it's that sure because god is for the believer who can be against us So the obvious implication is this, that if anyone were able to rob us of salvation, they would have to be greater than God himself. But of course, that's impossible. God is both the giver and the sustainer of salvation. And because there is nothing greater than God, he is number one. Well then, your assurance of salvation is totally secure. So to Christians, Paul is asking this in effect here. 
Who could conceivably take away our no-condemnation status? Remember Romans 8.1? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Nobody can take away your no-condemnation status if you're in Christ Jesus. So the Bible does not specifically mention any persons here other than, well, God himself, and I'm going to bring him up in just a moment, but... uh, Let's conceivably think of some possibilities here. Okay? Can other people rob us of salvation? That's the first one we want to think about. Can other people rob us of salvation? The obvious answer here, well, I hope to you it's obvious, is no. However, many of Paul's initial readers when he lived were Jewish. And they would be familiar with the Judaizing heresy that was being spread in the early church by the very highly legalistic Jews who claimed to be Christians, but they wanted to tack on all of these laws onto Christianity. Uh, For example, circumcision. Paul addressed the issue of circumcision being tacked on, particularly in the book of Galatians. And so these these people, these highly legalistic Jews, insisted that no person could be saved or could maintain their salvation without this strict observance to the Mosaic law. You had to be circumcised or you weren't a Christian. And so Paul addressed that. And in fact, it was brought up in the Jerusalem Council. You can read about that in the book of Acts. And, they were, and this council was called to discuss this very issue, and they came to a conclusion that no Christian is under the ritual law of the Mosaic Covenant. No Christian's under that law. Jesus Christ fulfilled the law. And so the major thrust of Paul's letter to the churches, and it wasn't just one church, it was multiple churches in the region of Galatia, was against this particular Judaizing heresy, and Paul summarized it in Galatians 5. Look at these words on the screen here. Galatians 5, verses 2 through 6. If you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again that every man who receives circumcision, he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace, for we through the Spirit by faith are waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. So how are you saved? It's by faith in Jesus Christ alone. By the way, the Roman Catholic Church teaches that salvation can be lost if you commit these so-called mortal sins. Uh, They also claim to have power for themselves to both to be able to grant grace as well as to revoke grace. (laughs) But such ideas you will not find in the Bible. There is no foundation for that belief in Scripture, and they are thoroughly heretical. No person or group of persons, regardless of their religious status, even if they claim to be Pope, the vicar of Christ himself, they can't bestow or withdraw the smallest part of God's grace. No human being can do that. 
no religious denomination can do that. So, number two. How about Christians? Can other Christians, can a Christian themselves put themselves outside of God's grace by committing wicked, heinous sins? The answer is no. But tragically, some evangelical churches today teach that you can lose your salvation, that that it is possible for you to commit sins and lose your salvation at any moment. Particularly those who hold to the Arminian theology. They would, those, those kind of churches often believe that sort of thing. That because they somehow uh, you know, brought themselves into salvation, that because they brought themselves into salvation, they can also take themselves out of salvation based upon whether or not they commit wicked sins. Particularly Wesleyan churches, some Uh, Many Methodist churches would be some of the groups that believe this sort of thing. But you need to remember 1 John 1.9. It's for believers. 1 John 1.9. That if you confess your sins, that God is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That includes the so-called wicked sins. (laughs) By the way, God doesn't necessarily rate sins. God doesn't have this... This list, you know, oh man, you know, here's the respectable sins. You know, gossip, gossip, you can gossip and still go to heaven. But if you commit this list of sins, oh, you're going to hell. No, God doesn't have that kind of a list. It doesn't exist. Number three, can God the Father take away our salvation? Because he's mentioned here in the passage, right? So can God the Father take away your salvation? I mean, if, if anyone could take away your salvation... Surely it must be the one who gave you salvation to start with, right? That's logical thinking for some people. We might argue theoretically that because God is sovereign, He reigns supreme over His creation, He's all-powerful, that He could take away our salvation if He wanted to. But of course that's theoretical and totally hypothetical because God the Father doesn't want to take away our salvation the idea goes, scripture, uh, goes totally against Scripture, including our context here. You look at our context here, and you'll, in fact, you'll, you'll see this in verse 32. The answer is in verse 32. Look at, look at it. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? The one who gave his own son, his only son, is not going to revoke your salvation. The assurance of your salvation lies in that fact. That's why you can't lose your salvation. How about Satan? Can Satan take away our salvation? (laughs) If anyone can do it, it must be Satan because he is our most powerful supernatural enemy on this planet. Let me give you an interesting story coming from the Old Testament. I think this will be helpful as we think about whether or not Satan can take away our salvation. Look at these words here on the screen. Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 through 3 says this, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Remember, Satan's called the accuser of the brethren. That's what he does. 
It says here, And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord has chosen Jerusalem. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. Notice it doesn't say that Joshua was standing with clean white robes. No, it doesn't say that. The filthy garments, by the way, are representing Joshua's sin. He was a sinner. We're all, as believers, justified sinners. We're still sinners. We're just declared righteous. (laughs) And although Joshua was still living in his sinful flesh, he was one of the Lord's redeemed. He had been bought back from the slave market of sin, and he was totally beyond Satan's power. Satan could not destroy him. Satan could not discredit him. Isn't that a wonderful story? Just as Satan tried to destroy Job and discredit him and accuse Job, God stood up for him. So because every believer has God's protection here, Paul asks the question here in our passage, in verse 33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? Who will bring this charge? The elect here is the the ones whom God has set his love upon. How can anyone bring a charge against them? God is the one who justifies. He is the one who condemns. Satan doesn't do that. Satan doesn't condemn. God is the one who does that. So the world and Satan, yes, they're continually bringing charges against you. But those charges amount to nothing before the Lord because He is the one who decides who is righteous before him. He is the one, as it says here, who justifies. He is the one who declares you righteous. So the justified have been declared eternally guiltless. And because of that, you're no longer under the condemnation of God if you are in Christ Jesus. Next we need to ask the question, well then, how about Jesus Christ? Can he take back our, can Jesus Christ take back our salvation? I mean, he's mentioned in verse 34 here. Can Jesus Christ take back our salvation? Well, I'm going to give you four reasons from verse 34 here of why Jesus Christ will not take back your salvation. The first one we see here in verse 34, it is Christ who died. It is Christ who died In his death, Christ took upon himself the full penalty of your sin. What is the penalty of sin, by the way? Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. That's primarily talking about eternal death there. The wages of sin is death, and when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he paid the penalty for your sin. You don't have to pay it. You can't pay it. And so his death... or I should say, in his death, he bore upon himself the condemnation that I deserve and you deserve. And the good news is, because of Christ, we are forever freed from that condemnation. So the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, which was on our behalf, he stood in our place. He was our substitute, is the only condemnation we will ever know. You don't have to bear it. Number two, the second reason why Jesus Christ will not take back our salvation is also in verse 34, is that Christ was 
raised from the dead. Christ was raised from the dead. And in the process of his resurrection, his resurrection, if you will, was the proof of victory. It was the proof there was victory over sin. There was proof there was victory over the penalty of sin. The grave could not hold Jesus. It was only temporary. He conquered death, the Bible says. His conquest over death gives us eternal life because he is alive. He has conquered death. And so to every person who trusts in him, this is possible. Notice I said, it's for everyone who trusts in him. So if you have never done this, if you have never been born again, you don't have this assurance. His resurrection gave absolute proof that the price had been paid. Atonement had, had been accomplished. And so when God raised Jesus from the dead, what was he doing? He's demonstrating that his son offered this full satisfaction for sin that the law demanded. What did the law demand? The law demanded a blood sacrifice. That was the, that was the point of the killing of all the lambs in the Old Testament. That was the the purpose of those sacrifices, of why they had to come to the temple and slit the throat of the lambs so their blood would be shed to cover their sins. Looking forward to the day when the perfect Lamb of God would come and shed His blood. Number three, the third reason we see here in verse 34 is that Christ is at the right hand of God. Christ is now, as we speak, at the right hand of God. And if you don't understand what that means, the right hand of God simply means it's a place of exaltation and honor. See, in Bible times, if you had an honored guest come to your tent or your house, you would give them the place on your right hand to sit at your dinner table. That was the place of esteem and honor and exaltation. It was the greatest honor you could give to your guest or to your friend or a family member. The Bible says in Philippians 2 that because Jesus Christ humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, the Bible says in verse 9 that God highly exalted him and gave him a name which is above every name. Number four, the fourth reason we see here in verse 34 is that Christ intercedes for us. Jesus Christ is not going to take away your salvation because he's interceding for you. Look at verse 34. Not only is it Christ who died, furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. So is Christ's work of atonement done? Yes. That's one of the points of the book of Hebrews. That Christ is better than everything else. His work of atonement was once for all accomplished for us. But he has a continuing ministry. As our great high priest, as our advocate, his ministry continues on your behalf. Why is your salvation secure? Why are you eternally secure? Because Christ is now in heaven interceding for us. The second major question we need to address from our passage here is this. Can circumstances cause a believer to lose their salvation? Okay, you, you, we see from Scripture that there is no person, even God the Father himself, will not take away our salvation. But what about circumstances? Can circumstances take away our salvation? 
Well, we're going to see here in verses 35 through 37 the answer to that question. By the way, in our context here, because in verse 35 it says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? In our context here, that, that love of Christ that's mentioned here represents salvation. Represents salvation. And then in verse 35, it's going to give us a representative list. It's not an exhaustive list. It's not a full list. There are seven, circum, sorry, seven circumstances that the believer can encounter and may encounter in this life, but none of these things will separate you from salvation or from the love of Christ. Number one, tribulation cannot separate us from salvation. Look at verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation? By the way, the word tribulation, you'll see that throughout your Bible, it it carries the idea of being squeezed, of being placed under pressure. In Scripture, the word's often used of outward difficulties, uh, things that come upon us from outward circumstances. That's the idea here. But the idea here is probably that of severe adversity in a general kind. Uh, it, it could also be used of emotional stress. Sometimes emotional stress can be more difficult than even some circumstance in our life. So, so it could be that as well. But it's definitely speaking of some kind of severe adversity in general the kind of thing that, that mankind would deal with, in, 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 we all deal with in common. That's the sort of thing it's talking about here, okay? So, tribulation cannot separate us from salvation. Number two, distress cannot separate us from salvation. Distress. And the word distress here carries the primary idea of some kind of a strict confinement, of being helplessly hemmed in. Maybe kind of like those miners who were, who were saved in the mine in Chile this, this week. They were helplessly hemmed in. I mean, that was, you wouldn't want to be claustrophobic as you were being brought up from the mine, would you? Standing in this little capsule. Well, in, in, in such circumstances, a believer can only trust in the Lord. I mean, when you feel like you're hemmed in and you are strictly confined and you're between that rock and a hard place, so to speak... The only place you can really look is you need to cast your care upon the Lord because He cares for you. You need to pray for power to endure. Sometimes we're caught in situations where we're continually fronted, or I should say confronted with temptations that we can't avoid. You know what? The Bible helps us in those circumstances. In fact, Paul counsels believers. Let me give you a verse you should memorize. I'll put it on the screen here for you. Here's what Paul counsels when we are under such distress. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also that you may be able to endure it. You say, well, what if he doesn't give me a way to escape that particular temptation? temptation or distress then what well then you pray for god's power to endure it until you're freed from it by the way every one of us as believers one day will be free from distress it's coming glory is coming and it may be shorter than you think 
Number three, persecution cannot separate us from salvation. That's also found in verse 35. Because it says, number one, shall tribulation. Number two, distress or persecution. Persecution refers to affliction that is suffered simply because you're a Christian. It is for Christ's sake. And it happens. All who live godly will suffer persecution. Persecution is never pleasant, okay? I'm not some weird kind of a person who just says, bring it on, you know? <laughs> sure, yeah, Put me a, tie me to a stake and burn me to death. No, I'm, I'm not one of those kind of people. But if the day comes, I'll pray for God's grace. In the Beatitudes, Jesus gives a double promise of God's blessing when we suffer for his sake. I'm, I'm so thankful for Matthew 5, verses 10 through 12, which tell us to rejoice and be glad For great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. (laughs) In fact, Hebrews 11 talks about some of those prophets. Sawn in two? Yee. Thrown to lions? Yee. Yeah, some pretty gory things happen there. You read Hebrews 11. Persecution cannot separate us from salvation. Number four, famine cannot separate us from salvation. Famine. By the way, famine, you read church history. I love church history. You often find that that often comes as a result of persecution for being a Christian. Because those who aren't believers, they don't like the Christians, and so they discriminate against them. Don't give them a job. Don't give them employment. Make it hard for them to get food. And as a result, famine takes place. Many believers over the years, you read, again, read church history, They were thrown in prison. Some of them, as a result of their faith, were were gradually starved to death. Simply because they were a Christian and wouldn't recant. Number five, nakedness cannot separate us from salvation. Now, typically we think of nakedness as being nude, being immodest, but that's not the general idea here. It has to do with destitution, being totally destitute, where, where a person cannot adequately clothe himself. You know, some believers got to a point where all they had were the clothes on their back, so to speak, and they became rags, you know, got holes in them. You know, they were cold, didn't have enough clothes. Like, you know, Paul, when, when he was in prison, he said, would you send me my cloak? You know, I'm, I'm rather cold, and send me the books. A lot of Christians have been like that, adequately or inadequately clothed. That's the idea here, being naked. Number six, danger cannot separate us from salvation. That one's kind of obvious. There's no really no, no point in trying to explain that to you. You know what danger means. You know what danger is, what it looks like. Even the things that we think, ooh, danger, even those cannot separate us from salvation. Number seven, sword cannot separate us from salvation. Now, sword here, Paul, when he says that, he's referring to, most likely, there was a a long dagger. I don't know exactly how long it was. But there was this long dagger that assassins would hide under their cloak, under their robes. And they would hide it there. They would use these things as assassins because it was concealable. They could hide it. And they could sneak up to someone, maybe in the dark or whatever, and assassinate them. 
as opposed to, you know, really long sword, it's, you know, it's kind of hard to conceal that and hide it, right? But that's the idea here. It was something that was easily concealable. So was, the sword here, in this sense, is something that was a symbol of, of death. It suggests murder, as opposed to dying in military battle. And so Paul's saying that even death and even assassination, even murder itself, is not going to be able to separate you from salvation. We don't need to, to fear death. Reminds me of the story of the pastor who was confronted by some robbers in New York City. I love this story. Some of these guys came up with him, up to this pastor. They had a couple knives on them. And, and they said, uh, your, your wallet or your life? And the pastor said, you cannot threaten me with heaven. And those robbers ran away because they thought he was crazy. And that's so true. You can't, as a believer, you can't be threatened with heaven. Death is just an initiation into glory. <laughs> so Paul is not speaking of these afflictions, by the way, as, as if they're just some theory or something as if it was secondhand hypothetical situation. Remember, Paul was a man who suffered. He went through a lot in his life. He himself had faced those hardships and many, many more. In fact, Paul wrote about them in 2 Corinthians 11. And I'll show you these verses here on the screen. And he refer, he's referring to certain Jewish leaders in the church. And, and these leaders were boasting about their suffering that they had gone through. And Paul, here's what he had to write. He says, are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so. In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren, I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. <laughs> Do you see a man here who is, he's just not writing about some theory. You know, he's not one of these ivory tower theologians who doesn't know what he's talking about. He's been there and he's done that. Let me give you an illustration. Any of you heard of Chrysostom? Again, I love church history. Chrysostom, what a wonderful story. By the way, the people in church history weren't perfect, just like you aren't perfect. They had issues, just like I have issues. And for some of them, they're quite glaring, just as they're quite, my sin is glaring to you, okay? But, but bear in mind, some of these, these people had wonderful testimonies of God's grace, and Chrysostom was one of them, okay? But one day, Chrysostom was brought before the Roman emperor, and the emperor threatened him with banishment if he remained a Christian. Chrysostom replied, You cannot banish me from this world. It is my father's house. But I will slay you, said the emperor. No, you cannot, for my life is hid with Christ in God. Then the emperor said, I will take away your treasure. Oh, no, but you cannot, for my treasure is in heaven, and my heart is there also. 
but I will drive you away from man and you will have no friend. No, you cannot, for I have a friend in heaven from whom you cannot separate me. I defy you, for there is nothing that you can do to hurt me. (laughs) Wonderful to see God's grace in Chrysostom's life. The third major question we need to look at here, because the passage is not done yet, is this, can anything cause a believer to lose their salvation? Because you might be sitting here thinking, well, what about this? What about this? What about this? Okay, it's easy for us to keep going. Try to think of things that might possibly cause us to lose our salvation. So let's think of some more here. We see here that death cannot separate us from salvation. In verse 38, death, it says, cannot separate us from salvation. Verse 38 says, for I am persuaded that neither death nor life. (laughs) By the way, does Paul sound like he's one of these wishy-washy kind of guys here? That, you know, well, maybe, maybe this is the case. No. He says, I am persuaded. In other words, he is totally convinced that this is real and this, this is true, and he is trying to persuade you that this is true. He has no doubt in his mind that he's on his way to heaven. So even it says here, even the supreme enemy itself cannot separate us from the Lord. Why? Because he has, God himself has changed death's sting from defeat to victory. Because of Christ's resurrection. So we can rejoice. We can rejoice in, in what the psalmist said. I love what the psalmist said in Psalm 116. He said, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of the godly ones. We can also testify with David in Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because God's with us. God is with us. And so we can say, as Paul did in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that we are finally at home with the Lord. Why? To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So death sends us into glory. How about life? Life cannot separate us from salvation, which it says in verse 38. Neither death nor life. Now, that might be a bit strange at first. You might think, well, isn't life something positive? Isn't that something to celebrate? Well, I need to remind you that it is because we are alive and we are in this life that we are able to to go through the things that have already been mentioned. So not only does death itself hold no harm for the believer, but it's going to bring an end to all harm. So death is something, really, is something I'm looking forward to. I look forward to the day where I no longer suffer my own indwelling sin and and have pain all the time and other issues. So it is while we still live in this life that you and I are going to face tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, and sword, but... Because, here's the good news, because we have eternal life. Because we have eternal life in Christ, the threats during our present life are totally empty. Number three, how about angels? Can angels separate us from salvation? The answer is no. Angels cannot separate us from salvation. That's the next one you see there on your, and verse 38. 
By the way, because of the next danger that's mentioned here, you, you say, well, what kind of angels are these talking about here? Are these good angels, bad angels, both? You know, what's it talking about? I, I think it's actually referring to the good angels, okay, the ones that are still in heaven, if you will. Because you look at the very next word, principalities, I put rulers on the screen, but uh, principalities, I think, is most likely referring to demons. So, because that one, the next one's referring to the demons, I think this one's referring to the good angels. So even the good angels cannot separate you from salvation. By the way, that's not going to (laughs) happen. They're not even going to try to do that. Because... They are the messengers of God. They do God's will. And of course, God's will is that we will not perish. So number four is the rulers or the demons. These evil beings cannot separate you from salvation. Oh, they can come and whisper in our ears and maybe even cause us to doubt and and, and, and lie to us. Remember, Satan is the father of lies, the Bible says. He was that from the beginning. They will try to do that. They will try to defeat you. Remember, Satan is like that roaring lion, walks about this earth seeking whom he may devour. You need to bear, be aware, but even he himself cannot separate you from salvation. Well, how about the present? Because it says, nor things present. No, the present cannot separate you from salvation. Things present, by the way, refer to everything that you're experiencing in this life now. Everything you're experiencing in this life now cannot separate you from salvation. It's impossible. Well, you say, well, what about the future? What about something that's going to happen in the future? You know, I've got this really noisy soul. I'm worried about things in the future. Well, that comes next. Because verse 38 says, nor things present, nor things to come. So the future cannot separate you from salvation either. And the seventh one that's mentioned here is powers. Powers. Sorry, I skipped over that one. Powers cannot separate us from salvation. By the way, powers is plural. And often that refers to miracles or mighty deeds. So even so-called mighty deeds or powers... Even some of those done by Satan himself cannot separate you from salvation. By the way, it was also used figuratively of people who had high positions of authority and power. So even they cannot separate us from salvation. Verse 39 says, nor height nor depth. Those things cannot separate us from salvation. Now, this one's a bit confusing. I, uh, I had to look this one up, try to fully understand what this was talking about. Paul may hear... Many scholars believe Paul may have been using height and depth as astronomical terms that were familiar in his day. See, they didn't know everything we have that we know today. They didn't have these the Hubble Space Telescope. You know, they, there's a lot they didn't know. And so height here referred to probably the high point or the zenith of a of a star's path in the universe. And depth probably referred to the lowest point of a star's path. And the idea is that Christ's love secures a believer as, as we go through our life, even in the high points and even during the low points. In other words, all throughout your life, the low and the high, you are in Christ's love. You cannot be separated from salvation. 
Well, some people thought, well, maybe it's maybe the height and the depths referring, you know, signifying the infinity of space. Space is huge. It's infinite. Even the Hubble Space Telescope can't reach the end of the universe. It is millions and millions of light years. It is endless in every direction. Well, whatever this term height and depth means, the basic meaning is this, that God's love is total. You are totally secure. Nothing is going to cause you to lose your salvation. And as if that wasn't good enough, the Holy Spirit sums it up and says, unless you think of anything else to add to the list, look what he adds here in verse 39. Nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So if you're sitting there and thinking, yeah, but, no, God just shut down, he shot, he shot down your yeah, buts. No created thing, nothing else in this universe will be able to separate you from salvation. It leaves absolutely no doubt that security is all-encompassing. And so Paul adds those words there, nor any other created thing. And so since God himself is is the only thing that is uncreated, everyone else and everything else is excluded. So there's nothing anywhere at any time that shall be able to separate us from the love of God. Do you just feel the warmth, the comfort, and the security in those words? These are the words of the living God to you. Do you believe them? Do you take them on board? Are you taking them on board? Or do you believe that you can lose your salvation? Our salvation was secured by God's decree from eternity past. And it's going to be held secure by Christ's love through all future time. There is no point in the compass of your life from conversion to glory where you will lose your salvation There is no sin that you can commit that will separate you from Christ's love. There is nothing you can do to separate yourself from God's salvation. There is no person, even God Himself, you cannot be separated from salvation. There are no circumstances that will separate you from salvation. And there is nothing, anything, no created thing will separate you from salvation. You are eternally secure. Therefore, you cannot lose your salvation. You say, well, what about that person who, you know, looked like they were a Christian, talked like they were a Christian? They sat right next to me in the church services all the time. They prayed the same prayers I did, read from the same Bible I did. They looked and talked and acted like a Christian. What about them? You know, they've denied the faith. They walked away from God. What about them? Did they lose their salvation? Chances are, as Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, they were never saved to begin with. Okay, Because the Bible makes it clear that if you're saved, you're going to persevere to the end. You will persevere to the end. You're eternally secure. You're not going to... If you deny Christ, Christ says he will deny you. Christ said in in Matthew chapter 7, oh sure, there's going to be many who will come to me and they're going to say, Lord, Lord, look at all the wonderful good things we've done in your name, all these good works. Hey, we cast out demons even. You know, does this get us into heaven? No. Jesus will say, depart from me. I never knew you. 
And he's going to cast them into outer darkness, which represents hell, the lake of fire. So the issue is, does not, do you know God? Do you know Jesus? But does Jesus know you? Have you put your faith in Christ alone? If you have, well, my friend, the Bible says you can't lose your salvation. You are eternally secure, and you will persevere to the end. But my, therefore, my friend, let me just say to you, if, if you are a true Christian, notice I said true, genuine Christian, you will never, ever lose your salvation. Praise God. Let's pray.